Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us on our latest journey, which, by the way, is taking us to the Uinta Mountains in northeast Utah, one of the prettiest places on earth to camp and hike, and for some, to search for a legendary treasure. This story was suggested to me by one of our listeners many moons ago. So long ago, I can't find your name, but thanks to you, nonetheless, for letting me know. This treasure goes by a lot of names, one of those being the Rhodes Mine Treasure, named after Thomas Rhodes, spelled R-H-O-A-D-E-S, another name being the Lost Mormon Mine, another being the Uinta Mountains Treasure. Since the Mormons are deeply involved in the find of this treasure, and some say the protection of its location, I chose to name it after them. I've watched numerous documentaries, watched interviews with experts on the subject, and read all types of accounts and history on this lost mine, and almost all of it agrees that this treasure mine exists and has not been found. Compared with all the other lost mine stories, in terms of the amount of attention it has received through books and media, it's the granddaddy of them all with regard to factual story content. It has become a legend by thus far eluding science and all human efforts to find it, and the fact that it exists here in the 21st century and we can't find it adds one more nugget of wonder to our lives today. At least that's how I see it. If it were found, it would be a huge disappointment. Well, saddle up. We're headed for the Uintas. The Uinta Mountains are an east-west trending chain of mountains in northeastern Utah, extending slightly into southern Wyoming in the United States. As a sub-range of the Rocky Mountains, they are unusual for being the highest range in the contiguous United States that runs east to west, and lies approximately 100 miles east of Salt Lake City. 
The range has peaks ranging from 11,000 to 13,528 feet, with the highest point being King's Peak, also the highest point in Utah. The Mirror Lake Highway crosses the western half of the Uintas on its way to Wyoming. The name Uinta derives from the Ute word Uvuitua, meaning pine forest or pine tree. The Uintas are an outdoor adventurer's dream with rugged wilderness to explore, including some of the best fishing and water sports in the country, as well as plenty of places for treasure seekers and gold panners to enjoy. The Ute tribe occupies reservation areas in southwestern Colorado and southeastern Utah. Ute is a part of the Numic branch of the Uto-Aztecan language family, which, by the way, reinforces the theory that their homeland was once occupied and no doubt mined by the Aztecs before the arrival of the Spanish. The Aztecs were big on creating gold adornments and idols, and there is little doubt that they enslaved many Utes to do their mining work for them, likewise for the Spanish. If you've ever wondered where the term Ute comes from, the Spanish explorers called them Quasuatas, a term used by the Spanish at the time to refer to all tribes north of the Pueblo peoples and south of the Shoshone. The Ute people refer to their own language as Nu'u Apacapi, or Nu'uchi, meaning the people's speech and of the people, respectively. Since the Utes factor in this story, I thought it would be helpful to describe how they got their name. Living between the Comanches and the Shoshone definitely kept the Utes on edge and no doubt created great warriors. The Mormon treasure story rotates around three cultures, the Spanish, the Mormon, and the Ute Indians, all three of which at one time had leaders who knew the locations of various gold mines in the Uintas and have since, as the legend goes, lost that knowledge. During the Spanish occupation of what comprised most of the southwestern U.S., the mining of gold and silver employed hundreds of Spaniards, Mexicans, and captured Ute Indian slaves in the work of extracting those precious minerals from the earth. Once the ore was extracted from the vein, which was discovered by chipping away it, which was discovered by chipping away in existing caves or by digging shafts into mineral-rich areas, it was melted down, refined, and poured into molds to form ingots. Those ingots were loaded onto mules or burrows. The ingots were relatively easy to transport, provided you weren't one of those mules. The gold was taken to Mexico City, transferred to the ships at Veracruz, and sent on its merry way to fill the treasure chests of Spain and the church, losing some along the way to pirates like Lafitte and Storms. The Spanish looked upon the mines in the Uintas as the richest producers anywhere in their territory. The Utes very much resented the Spanish nosing around in their mountains, and they fought them when they could, but the Spanish were better armed and wore armor, making them hard to kill. The Spaniards killed off much of the game and captured and enslaved the Utes, who were finally driven to war against the Spaniards, a war which consisted of guerrilla attacks on the Spanish mines and mule trains and mule trains exiting those mines. Each year as winter approached, the Spaniards closed down the mines temporarily. The last gold-laden pack trains left for Mexico City, and the Spanish officers and priests went to towns like Santa Fe, where they patronized the taverns. In the winter of 1680, Heavy snows began falling in the Uintas, and the Spanish were busy packing a huge mule train for the journey back to Mexico City. The gold ingots were packed into leather panniers and strapped onto the mule's saddles, and a huge pack train containing the riches from several mines began its way down the canyon, followed by miners, engineers, missionaries, and a few soldiers on foot. A few hours later, when the party entered a broad meadow at the mouth of the canyon, 
it was attacked by a large party of Utes who came streaming out of the nearby forest on horseback and on foot, all brandishing bows, war clubs, tomahawks, and knives, and the Spaniards were all slaughtered within minutes. When the Utes finished torturing, scalping, and mutilating the corpses, they rounded up the Spaniards' horses and weapons and led them away to their village. The burrows were led back up the canyon to the mines along with several of the dead Spaniards. Upon reaching one of the mines, the Utes removed the packs of gold and carried them into the abandoned mine shaft, where they were dumped, as the story goes. They then placed the bodies of the dead Spaniards on top of the paneers to warn any future searchers from trying to take the gold. Following this, the Utes covered up the mines and mine shaft entrances to make them hard to find and then left the canyon. And it bears mentioning here that there are hundreds of canyons in the Uintas and many of them look exactly alike. Even the most experienced Boy Scouts and guides can get turned around in there, according to reports. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now back to our story. In 1847, a large party of Mormons led by Brigham Young arrived at Salt Lake City, about 100 miles west of the Uintahs. The Mormons were taught to believe that the Utes were descendants of one of the lost tribes of Israel, and as a result, the Mormon people treated the Utes with respect, which was a new twist for them. Young was smart enough to realize that if he treated the Utes well, there would be far less stealing and depredations committed. As allies, the Utes could also be a help in fighting off anti-Mormon factions, and the Utes could benefit from their unique alliance with the Mormons, who were well-armed. It was the same type of alliance that protected the early pilgrims in Massachusetts, and it worked well for the Mormons, who had settled in what was potentially very hostile Indian territory. It only took a few years for Salt Lake City to grow into a thriving and prosperous city. It became an important stopping point for wagon trains, and trade and commerce was brisk between the two. Salt Lake City merchants demanded that payments be made in gold. As legend has it, during one transaction between a storekeeper and a group of Oregon-bound migrants, an Indian named Yakira, some say Wakara, was surprised to see gold changing hands for goods, the fact dawning on him suddenly that the gold dust could get things from white men. Several weeks later, it happened that Yakira had the opportunity to meet and speak with Brigham Young, and he told Young that he knew of a place in the mountains where gold, such as that used in the transaction he had watched, could be found in great quantities. One week later, the two rode eastward into the heart of the Uintas. Yakira was a chief of a sub-tribe of the Utes called the Timpanogos, and he had become known for making the Utes a horse tribe, which they had not been previously. The Ute tribes were still feeling the effects from 300 years of Spanish domination, and Yakira was doing all he could to advance them. In recent years, the Utes were traveling yearly to California to steal cattle and horses from their Mexican enemies. They were also raiding neighboring polar tribes like the Paiutes and kidnapping their wives and children, enslaving them. Yakira believed that if they let the Mormons farm and settle the land and live in peace, that would help the Ute tribe to become strong and secure as well, and it was working. 
Yakira had learned to speak Spanish, English, and Ute, and he was a thinker. He had no need for gold, but Brigham Young, he knew, did, and he needed Brigham as an ally. As Yakira led Brigham Young up the steep trail toward the remote canyon, he related an amazing story. He told Brigham Young of the mining operations that had been going on in the Uintas and how the Spanish had enslaved the Utes and killed many members of the Ute tribe. He explained of the Ute folklore that spoke of the time the Utes slaughtered the Spanish pack train and how the packs full of gold had been thrown back into one of the mines along with the bodies of the Spanish guards. Then he explained how the Utes had fought to protect the mines from further exploration. As the story goes, Yakira then led Brigham Young directly to the mine shaft in which the gold ingots had been hidden. Beneath the skeletons of the Spanish guards lay more ingots than Brigham Young could count. While they stood inside the mine, Yakira made Young promise that he would never reveal the location of the mine except to those designated by the Mormon leader to travel to the mine to retrieve the gold. On the trip back to Salt Lake City, Brigham Young did a lot of thinking about what man or men he could trust to manage his retrieving gold from the mine which Yakira had shown him. Young had made a map showing the location of the mine, and planned to make a few copies more when he returned. As for the right person, Young decided to place his trust in Thomas Rhodes, who was a devout Mormon who had come back from the California minefields loaded with gold. And we've got more on Thomas Rhodes near the end of the story. Rhodes was a miner and a surveyor, and was now independently wealthy, choosing to spend the majority of his waking hours in service to the church. As the story goes, Young asked Rhodes for a private meeting in his chambers, and while there, shared the story of the Uinta gold with Rhodes. Rhodes pledged his full support, and showed Young he could trust him with anything. Soon they arranged a means by which Rhodes could maintain a close watch on the mine, and the key entrance to the area of the Uintas, through which they would need to enter and exit with pack trains. Using his alliance with the Utes, Young supported Rhodes building a ranch right at the base of the Uintas at the entry point. According to archives of the LDS Church, which were recounted in a manuscript titled The Forgotten Pioneer by Kenneth Davies, the arrangement between Rhodes and Young was done very secretly. Davis points out that Rhodes was a Danite, meaning that he was ordered not to reveal that he was a Mormon working for the LDS Church. Thomas Rhodes and his son Caleb lived at the base of the Uintas for 30 years in the Kamas Valley without fear of harm from the Utes. Davis also questioned the residents in the little town of Roosevelt near the backside of the Uintas, and many knew of and believed the Lost Rhodes Mine stories, especially the danger involved in attempting to find that mine. Some had known people who had gone in to search for it and never returned. That side of the Uintas is apparently full of mystery. To access the eastern Uintas, backpackers need to begin in White Rocks on tribal grounds. It's a place that hikers don't frequently visit, and there's thousands of acres of untamed wilderness. Ashley National Forest borders a large part of that, and hikers are informed and hikers were informed that there's no trespassing there, presumably because it's dangerous. Treasure hunters, enthusiasts, and lost gold seekers have determined that east of Fort Duchesne, in White Rock's Rock Creek, is the place where millions of dollars worth of gold lies in abandoned mine shafts and caverns, left there by both Aztecs and Spaniards. Blood has likely been spilled there, most of them say. One writer notes that while researching in the LDS library, one librarian asked the writer to look out for her grandpa Buck, who went there 20 years ago seeking gold, 
and never returned. It's rough country. One legend states that a splinter band of Utes lives in there, living the old ways, and they've accounted for more than one prospector. Young made Rhodes take an oath never to reveal the secret, handed him a map, and several days later, in the company of three Indian guides, Rhodes made his initial foray into the Uintas to seek the mine. A week later, Rhodes returned to Salt Lake City, according to the story, leading a pack mule loaded with gold ore dug from a vein he had found in one of the mines. In later years, Rhodes told an interviewer that the vein he found was so rich that he was able to chop out enough of the ore to fill two saddlebags without ever moving from the spot. The supply of gold in that vein, he said, was inexhaustible. Some versions say that Rhodes made numerous trips over the next few years, but the more plausible story is that with the help of young and a selected people, they built a ranch for Rhodes at the base of those mountains and raised cattle so that he would appear to be a busy rancher, while behind the scenes he became the mine operator, supplying the church with all the gold he could find. It was a smart and quiet operation. It was only in later years that the rumors of gold in the Uintas became prevalent. When Brigham Young and Thomas Rhodes passed away, Rhodes' son Caleb became one of the only white men to know of the location of the mine. Caleb had also sworn an oath of secrecy, and knew that to dishonor that promise could easily cost him his life. As he got older and became infirm, he let the secret slip, however, but he could only offer a map, as he no longer could handle trips out in the wilderness. The searchers came up empty-handed. There was no doubt that Caleb and his father had secreted away their own stash, because when Caleb died in 1905 at that ranch, he was considered to be one of the wealthiest men in Utah. The legend says that with the passing of Caleb Rhodes, the location of the lost Rhodes mine was lost forever. Not long after Caleb's death, rumors of an extensive gold deposit in a secret canyon in the Uintah Mountains became common, and soon prospectors, adventurers, and treasure hunters arrived in great numbers, all hopeful of striking it rich. A few, it is said, found a small amount of gold, and an uncommonly high percentage found only death, many at the hands of the Ute Indians many of whom still lived the old ways, even into the beginning of the 20th century. One story is told that in the 1890s, two prospectors arrived in Salt Lake City seeking directions to the Uintah Mountains. They spent nearly a year in the mountain range looking for gold, but most of their time was spent looking for the lost Spanish gold mines in the secret canyon. They were spotted leaving, each man leading a mule carrying a heavy load. Two days after they were first seen, the two men were seen again, stopping at a ranch for water for themselves and for their animals. During a conversation with the rancher, the two men said they'd found some gold, and asked if they could stop by again in the future, to which the rancher said yes. Then the rancher asked if he could look in one of the saddlebags to confirm their story. He did, and it was full of gold nuggets. Over the next few years, the men stopped at the ranch for water a few times more, each time carrying loaded saddlebags. As you would expect, when asked about the location of the mines, the men were tight-lipped, stating only that they were sure that they had found the same mine from which Thomas and Caleb had found their ore. One spring, the two men were seen entering the Uintas again, but no one saw them return. Years later, the skeletons of the two men were found deep within the mountain range. Many believed they were killed by Utes. In 1956, a man named Clark Rhodes was hunting deer in a Uintah canyon where he claimed he accidentally found one of the mines. While searching the canyon for deer one winter, he crossed a set of bobcat tracks in the snow and followed them right to an old mine shaft, 
the entrance to which was partially covered by large rocks. He wanted to enter the shaft, but he had no light, so he carefully mapped the location and returned the next summer. When he arrived the following summer, he moved the rocks and climbed into the old shaft, finding several Spanish artifacts just several yards from the entrance, but nothing else. There was also an area that was covered with rocks and dirt, as if they were being used to fill something, maybe a hole. Picture yourself in there, turning your flashlight right and left, slowly, nervously, listening for rattlesnakes warning, and no doubt hearing your own heartbeat in the stillness and darkness. Not finding anything else, he placed a few rough-looking rocks in his pocket and climbed out. A few weeks later, he had those rocks assayed, and discovered that they had a high gold content. He returned to the shaft the following year with the goal of removing the rock and dirt fill he had seen there to see what it covered. Doing that, and then digging and chipping at the walls for two days, he could see by the way the ceiling was crumbling as he hit the walls that it was very unstable. He decided that further work in there could cost him his life, and he left, never to return, as the story goes. In 1988, two 16-year-old Ute boys were found to be in possession of six gold ingots, all of them formed in the style of early Spanish mining, with two of them bearing Spanish letters and symbols. When asked where they had found the bars, they said they were found in an old mine shaft in the Uintal Mountains, pulled from a pile that contained hundreds more. They refused to provide any more information, saying they did not want to be killed by any members of their tribe, who were doing all they could to keep the location secret. Legend persists today that the old mine shaft where the gold ingots are stored is protected by the Utes today. It is a fact that treasure hunters have disappeared in the Uintas or have been found killed. One such treasure hunter was interviewed by a newspaper before going in in the 1960s, and he was later found with a bullet hole in his skull. The Uintas have recorded two dozen unsolved murders in the last half century. The Camas Valley History Group offers some unique perspective from Thomas Rhodes' family genealogy records, as follows, in a piece named The Lost Rhodes Mind, The Back Roads of Our Genealogy. Was Thomas Rhodes the richest man in Utah Territory? Did he and his family have fabulous gold mines in the Uintah Mountains and private information about gold catches abandoned by Spanish miners who antedated Escalante and Dominguez? Was he a substantial contributor to the Deseret Mint, underwriting almost single-handedly Utah Territory's beginning financial ventures? Some of the stories about Rhodes seem a bit apocryphal, but there is evidence that the early LDS convert did help to jumpstart the territorial mint with gold he brought from the California fields, and several sources confirm that he was made privy to information about gold hordes in the possession of the Ute Indians. Rose was born in Kentucky and fought in the War of 1812. He later moved to Illinois and there joined the Infant Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1835, sharing in its early persecutions. When talk about a westward migration became serious after the death of the prophet Joseph Smith, Rhodes and a band of saints asked permission to scout the territory west of the Rocky Mountains. The party set out in May of 1846, a year before Brigham Young and his band of pioneers were ready for the trek. At that juncture, no one, not even President Young, was certain where in the west the saints would set down roots. Rhodes and his party overshot the Salt Lake Valley and continued on to California. Their wagon train was just ahead of the unfortunate Donner Party, which suffered terrible hardships in the Sierra Nevada mountains after a late-season start. One account of Rhodes says members of his family were among those who went to the Donner's rescue. 
the Rhodes contingent arrived in California in October of 1846, and Thomas acquired a large tract of land on the Consumers River in the Sacramento Valley. He became a friend and employee of John Augustus Sutter. Sutter's name flared into lasting fame when gold was discovered at his mill site, triggering the California gold rush of 1849. The Rhodeses reported they were paid in gold dust while they worked for Sutter, and they also took gold themselves from placer mines in the area. Rhodes and other saints who had gone to California, including members of the Mormon Battalion, had begun to settle comfortably into their new lives when President Young determined that Salt Lake Valley was the place. He sent letters to Rhodes and other church members advising them to return to Zion. Some did. Some preferred to remain in California. In August of 1849, Rhodes and Samuel Brannan organized a wagon train to make the journey back to Utah. How much gold Rhodes had when he retraced his steps is not known, but in a talk given by Brigham Young on September 6, 1850, he commented that the wealthiest man who came from the mines, Father Rhodes, with $17,000. The gist of President Young's speech was to convince the saints that California's gold fields were not a good alternative for them. Nevertheless, the colonizing prophet was happy to accept the gold the California wanderers brought to the territory to fuel a mint that provided pioneers a badly needed medium of exchange. On October 9, 1849, according to church records, Thomas Rhodes deposited $10,826 in the mint's account, a sizable fortune for the time. The amount of his donation merited a separate account in the mint records. Western historian George A. Thompson who authored several articles about Rhodes, conjectured that he was one of the contributors who helped the Mint produce far more gold coins than could have been accounted for by the small donations of the general church membership, most of whom were destitute when they arrived in the valley. The Rhodes family enjoyed a degree of affluence beyond that of many pioneers. Thomas built the finest home in the valley, a block south of Temple Square, and he provided elegant homes for each of his four wives and their families, nearly three dozen children in all. His first wife had three sets of twins. He was named Salt Lake County Treasurer and was a lieutenant in the Nouveau region. His adventures with gold were not behind him, family records indicate. In 1852, he was commissioned by President Young to salvage hidden gold known to the Ute Indians. Chief Walker, Wakara, who had been baptized a member of the church, reportedly agreed to reveal the location of the gold as long as it was used exclusively for the benefit of the church. The site of the mines was called Kereshin-Ob, or There Dwells the Great Spirit. Thompson recounted, Indians had no particular interest in the gold beyond their basic needs and harbored old resentments against Spanish overlords who had mined the metal at the expense of their race, he said. Walker's conditions were that only one person at a time know where the mines were, that Indian surveillance would be constant, and that only as much gold that could be brought out each trip as one individual could carry. The death penalty was to be executed immediately if the secret got beyond the chosen person. President Young demanded in turn that Walker, whose loyalties were known to be chancy, take an oath upon the Book of Mormon to hold up his end of the bargain. According to the family account of Gail R. Rhodes, a grandson, Thomas made a number of trips into the mountains with an Indian guide. The gold supposedly was from mines abandoned by Spanish entrepreneurs who were in the territory before the 1776 Dominguez-Escalante explorations. Each of Rhodes' trips took about two weeks, and the first load of gold, the family records say, weighed about 62 pounds. 
The Deseret News frequently reported his comings and goings, without details regarding gold, if any. In the summer of 1855, Thomas had a severe illness, and his son, Caleb, signed the oath and took over the job of recovering the Indian gold. When Thomas was well again, father and son took several trips together. Walker himself died in late 1855. The Rhodes records say that the statue of the Angel Moroni atop the Salt Lake Temple was overlaid with the Indian gold, as were some of the trimmings inside the temple. In December of 1855, Rhodes obtained a land grant from the territorial legislature for a huge area known today as Camas Valley. Family writings say, again, that Father Rhodes and Caleb worked gold mines on this land. Thomas also found black minerals in the area, coal that became part of the church mining properties. Caleb reportedly became the largest tithe-payer and one of the most generous members of the church in his almsgiving. Many eyewitnesses said they'd seen his gold at various times. After the Indian Walker's death, his brother, Arapine, took over Ute leadership and continued to allow Caleb Rhodes to harvest gold from the tribe's secret store. But Arapine's successor, Chief Tabby, denied him access. Caleb made several covert trips to the site after this, family records say. He also petitioned the U.S. Congress for a land lease and agreed to pay the national debt in exchange. He was frustrated in part by a Utah representative to Congress, George Q. Cannon, who said Rhodes was only an ignorant prospector and not capable of handling a $100 million deal. In the end, the petition was denied, and the federal government eventually chartered other companies to mine in the Uintas. Government-paid geologists scouted the area and reportedly found many Spanish artifacts, smelter ruins, and other signs of ancient mining. But they never found the fabled Rhodes Mine. Caleb claimed the deposits were in unique formations not usually associated with gold. He said the geologists were looking in the wrong place. Thomas was called in the late 1850s to settle Minersville and help develop silver mines in that area, and he died there in 1869. Legendary stories about Spanish gold and speculation about the Rhodes family successes in the Uintown mines have inspired many gold seekers to scour the area for clues. In some cases, the ventures have led to disastrous results, Thompson writes, leading to claims of a lingering curse. He himself discounts the curse, but concludes that Mormon money and Rhodes gold, they are one and the same. This from the Deseret News, July 2, 1996. Lost Rhodes Mines the land grant included the Camas Valley, originally named Rhodes Valley, the drainages between the upper Weber River and the upper Provo River. While the old sketch is not a perfect match to today's topography, you can see enough features that allow us to determine a little better the actual boundaries of the grant. The northern boundary seems to follow the Weber River right up to Mirror Lake, and then down the Duchesne River to where it turns up Iron Mine Creek, across Soapstone, and down to Woodland on the south side. Rhodes first came to the valley in 1859 with about 20 other Mormons, including W.O. Anderson, John Turnbow, John Simpson, Morgan Lewis, Daniel Lewis, Alma Williams, Clinton Williams, Richard Venable, Richard Pangburn, John Lambert, and their families. The group clustered together in a fort near a spring on the east side of the valley for the first several years. The log fort was 16 feet high, and the fort walls formed the backs of the houses. Before the group vacated the fort, Thirty-two families had lived in it. A log building in the fort center was used as a schoolhouse, meeting house, amusement hall, and center of government. After obtaining the grant and moving to Camas Valley, 
Rhodes began to work whatever locations they had just obtained the right to in the grant, but he soon fell ill and his son Caleb then took over the work for him. Family writings say, again, that Father Rhodes and Caleb worked gold mines on this land. Thomas also found black minerals in the area, coal that became part of the church mining properties. Caleb reportedly became the largest tithe-payer and one of the most generous members of the church in his almsgiving. And there the story ends. And the desire to have all it can bring. Some men do go crazy. This is the way it is, and this is the way it will always be. Over the centuries, tons of gold has been taken from the Uintas, but many believe there are tons more to be had. Many have tried, and all but a few have failed. If you've been thinking of trying it, your only question should be, Are you feeling lucky? Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We always appreciate good reviews, so if you do have a few minutes, and if you're an Apple listener, please do take a moment and send us a review. Reviews help to convince new listeners to give us a try, and we appreciate them very much. We also appreciate your sharing our show with others. Our latest review reads, Lusitania, five stars. I've been enjoying the podcast about the Lusitania. Never heard much about this ship. John makes history fun to listen to and learn from. I especially enjoy anything World War II. Keep up the great work, John. Down from Mike Austell, Apple Podcast, U.S. Mike, thank you very much. We appreciate your review. We'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone. Until then, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.